Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom and welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, pastor of Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana, and I am so excited to be with you guys today. I hope that your week is going well, and I hope that you are full of uh, still basking in the remnants of Sukkot. I know I've said that the last couple of weeks, but uh, it's just been so incredible. Uh, the fall Moedim, and uh, for the time we're in right now, uh, we just need to bask in uh, in the the, uh, the encounters with Hashem that we've all had through this last uh, feast season. And so, I hope your week's going well. I hope your families are well. And uh, it is my privilege. We're just going to jump into it today uh, to have with me, one, in my opinion, uh, one of the absolute rock stars of the. Messianic Hebrew roots. I, I don't, Dina. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, uh, I don't want to shame you by using a label or box you in by using a label. But um, uh, Dina Die, Doctor Dina Die, is with us today. And um, Dina, I am so excited that you're with us. And we've been working on this for a, a few weeks. And we had the feast and everything else. Uh, and I just, I, I love you. I love your stuff. I love your conversation. I, I love the way you view the scriptures and the world. And so I'm really, really glad to have you with us as we talk about your, your new book, which is out and selling like hotcakes on Amazon. And we're so fortunate for that. So ladies and gentlemen, welcome Dr. Dina Dye. Well, hi, Joe. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I'm not sure I can live up to the introduction, but I'll try. <laughs> And yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, the book, as you said, especially in the last week, the book is really selling well, and it's very encouraging. My hope is that it'll reach a larger audience, uh, you know, worldwide, and so that we can start thinking about the Bible perhaps in a different way. Um, as you said, and others, this feels like my best work. I, I think it's a lot easier to engage in the material than than perhaps my first book, The Temple Revealed in Creation. This one, of course, The Temple Revealed in Noah's Ark, From Chaos to Order. So I'm very excited about the book, and I'm excited to be able to do interviews, you know, and talk to uh, some influencers in my sphere and, and get the word out. Yeah, it's excellent. Um, and we, we've talked about uh, on different occasions, and we kind of laugh about it, but um, I recommend your books to everybody. Uh, and especially folks who are understanding that, well, like the temple's kind of a big deal. The tabernacle's kind of a big deal. How do we find out more about it? And maybe may, your books may not be the first place I should send people. Right. But I, I always do recommend Eventually. them. And go like, yeah, you got, you got to read this stuff. And the, the comment I get more than anything else was like, it was really good, but it was kind of hard to read. And so, you know, this book, um, the, the, when you're dealing with Noah's Ark and the temple revealed in Noah's Ark is – 
is I think the perfect blend of uh, midrashic, you know, like you call them vignettes, um, and and symbology and what how to read scripture. We were talking before the interview, and you know, one of my the most most world shaking epitome or not epitomes, but uh, revelations the last couple of months is that we just don't know how to read the Bible. Um, we know in in our in our everyday culture, we know of, we're reading a lab report from the hospital versus a comic book. We know how to read those two things differently. Um, but right. when, we, when we open the pages of the Bible, we read it all literally, or you know, and we just we miss so so much. So um, I really appreciate the work you've done. Uh, taking you three years to do this, but the work you've done yes. here is. <laughs> Is is a concise college course in America in uh, in ancient Near Eastern uh, history and literature and culture, and and I'm so thankful about it. So let's jump in with an easy one. We'll start with an easy one. Um, in your view, uh, what is the Bible about? So uh, taking that forty thousand foot view, and you know, I, I, as I've taught over the past forty years, I can see different filters. You know, for example, one filter people that are it's easy for people to see is the marriage so they can see the relationship between god and israel as a, as a marriage the bride and the groom so that becomes a filter for people as they're reading and that that's that's an easy one as i stood back i i began to see the temple as a filter and temple language was jumping up everywhere and then as i began to uh, research the material from the ancient near east perspective I began to realize just how significant the concept of the temple was and really the involvement of the gods and the kings and, and that the place of the presence of, you know, the ancients' gods and, of course, our god. But then even that I began to see as well the importance of understanding kingship and the king because that was his throne in the temple, all this stuff. So the filters upon filters upon filters. But finally with this book, I went back even farther and I realized it does even it's more than even the temple and, and the kingship and, and the enthronement and all that. It's the language of creation, mm. creation, decreation, new creation. So the, the, the big overall picture is that story that God created, that man destroyed and that God, you know, helped man recreate uh, a new kingdom. And so from Genesis to revelation, I would say is the story of, new creation or recreation, however you want to put it. And so that to me, I think I finally see (laughs) the big, 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 big picture because (laughs) creation language is infused throughout the Bible. So for example, every time you read a story about the, the patriarchs and the matriarchs and she's barren and then God comes and something happens and now she produces the matriarch that is, that's the story of recreation. Mm. That's the story of rebuilding a house for a place for the presence of God. So that's a fairly simple example, but you'd be hard pressed not to find one story or, or one chapter in the Bible that doesn't have in it language of creation, reproducing after its own kind and bringing forth new life. And so the world of the nations was death, you know, destruction, military conquest, killing people, and then the story, Israel's story of creation is life coming forth and, and bringing forth uh, the seed for, for generation after generation. Yeah, I love that. And I, I stumbled upon a thought um, this, last, this last feast cycle that, um, you know, when we come into Torah, um, we, depending on what lens or, or how we came in, the, the, the way that God used to bring us in, some people it's Shabbat. 
some people it's the feast, some people it's dietary, you know, all different right. angles. And so what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to study and to really cling on to, let's say, the feast. And we study the feast and we, we just kind of narrow down on that or dietary or whatever, whatever Hashem used. And one of the things that I think we've missed is that where all of the Torah, um, if you take the temple, the temple is the hub. And you have no feast without the temple. You have no dietary right. really explanation or, or responsibility. Uh, you have Shabbat really without the temple ideal, right? And so when you right. so we study all of the the, the legs of the temple, um, but we don't study the temple itself. And right. when you take the temple out, all the legs start to fall apart, or they 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 are unbalanced against each other. And yeah. so what what I'm challenged by what you just said is. Maybe even more than the temple, really, the temple is the the idea of order and creation. And so it's the temple is not the hub, maybe. Creation is the hub, and, and order is the yeah. hub, and just is signified by the tabernacle or the temple. Well, that's really the conclusion I reached after writing this book. I mean, I didn't think that's where I was going to end up. So, you know, people write books different ways. Some, uh, they call it writing by the seat of their pants. <laughs> Others write with a complete outline and they just fill in the blanks. And I thought I would be one who wrote an with an outline because that's kind of how I think. But it ended up not being the case. I just kind of plowed through and it's kind of wherever the Lord is leading me. And so I, this is not where I thought I would end up. But it's clear to me that that really is the hub of, that's the whole message of the Bible and we're not used to looking at it that way. And, and, and we know, I mean, Yeshua in Paul, we, we see sort of language of new creation, but we, yeah. don't, we don't put it back in its proper perspective. Honestly, I, I think we could say creation and the temple are kind of synonymous terms. Right. So because God, in God building, if you will, creation, he is making a house for himself. Mm-hmm. And so really the, the concept of, and temple language and creation language kind of overlay one another. So sometimes it's hard to separate the two. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. And the, I guess the, the balancer for me is that um, when, we, when we study whatever we're studying, you know, biblical principles or, or Torah commandments or whatever, when we study them outside of the, the lens of and the accountability to so if, if we're studying Shabbat and that doesn't improve our understanding and living of new creation, then we're really not, then what's the point? If, you know, if we're, if we're going to be really belligerent militarily, uh, you know, uh, militaristic about our observance of kosher laws, that's great. But if not in the light of how that affects creation and new creation, then what's, then what's the point? And so it's the balancer uh, for, for these things so that we can bear his image, you know, better and bring new creation. So I, I love that. So in talking about... Um, how we read the Bible and, and what it's all about. You, you, you kicked me in the stomach in the first part of the book where you wrote a little bit about myth. And, and we have different literary genres in Scripture, right? You have narrative, you have poetry, you have prophecy, you have um, you know, all these different types of, of, of literature uh, that the, the Lord and that the writers use. And one we don't hear a lot about is myth. So a myth is something that is a false story, right? Well, I mean, that's so probably around the Middle Ages, things just twisted and and you can't hardly even say the word. It's very difficult to go to a group and talk about myth mythology without everyone's mind going immediately to, 
it's false, it's fiction, it's not true, it's about quaint primitive uh, peoples, but has nothing to do with our age of science. I mean, you can see that it's in many ways just the complete antithesis of, of science and fact and sort of, so it's really even, it's difficult to even talk about it. But you have, you know, when you go back into that culture and time, I mean, that's, that, that's how they told their stories. Their stories were quote unquote mythological stories, but they were true, but there was an element to them that was symbolic. And so it's hard for us to plow through that because we want everything to be literal. Right. So for instance, you know, I look out my window, I see trees. And so somebody will ask me, you know, what a tree is. So I'm going to describe it in physical detail mm -hmm. of what it looks like. You know, the leaves are long and, you know, what the bark looks like and blah, blah. But, but in the ancient world, you know, they looked at a tree and they saw the attributes of the tree, the function of the tree, the, 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 the strength and the power and how it was the largest element in their world. And so they began to associate the, the trunk of the tree with the divine king. Okay, so when we see that language all the way through scripture. Right. So theirs was a world, it, it's a real world. Yeah, they, they are describing real things, but they're using language that is very metaphorical, very symbolic to describe real things. And that's not how we, that we don't look at it that way. Right. And so these stories are real. They've been passed down from generation to generation, but infused in those stories is language that's very colorful and graphic, but very metaphorical. And so we're kind of stuck. We take it all just literally. And then because it makes no sense, we just sort of toss it out. Right. And, you know, I, I <laughs> Genesis is, uh, Bereshit is, for me, the, the kind of king of this type of, you know, trying to wrap your mind around yeah. how the Bible works and what the language is. And I remember having Brad Scott um, <clears throat> to speak for us just a few years before he, he passed in his memory via blessing. And I, I remember joking with him saying, you know, I, I, he spent 40 years teaching in the first six chapters of the book of Genesis. And, nice. and, I, and I remember yeah. thinking, how? I mean, it's six chapters. Just get on with it, you know, and get to the rest of Scripture. Right. And and not long <laughs> after he came, God really started to, start to deal with me. And and for the last uh, four years or so, I can't get out of chapter two. You know, it's just, it's one of those things because your mind, our minds, really struggle against the, well, it has to be literal and it has to be historical. That's true, quote unquote, right? Um, when, mm -hmm. when something's not literal or historical, then it's not, quote unquote, true. And that is such a brain right. twister for us as modern, yeah. modern people. Oh, it's very... Very challenging. And it, I mean, in some ways, we're just a victim of sort of the age of enlightenment when when reason became God and we separated mm. science from religion. And, you know, we're a couple hundred years past that. So it's it's just really tough. And like I said, I can't even hardly use the word without people going there. Right. But if we can appreciate that the writers are writing these stories in myth form, but they are historical with real people, real places, real events but they're infusing something into the story that we're not used to looking at. And I would submit the language they're, they're infusing into the story is the language of creation. We're going to, we're going to just see that. And then a contrast that with, you know, uh, non-order you know, a decreation. Mm -hmm. And that, that's, that's the story all the way through. And so I, I always end up back in Genesis one, like it doesn't matter <laughs> what I'm doing there. I am. And I know some people <laughs> probably think, 
okay, could we just move along here? But there's not a story in the Bible that doesn't take us back there. Like what is, right. if we don't understand what God is doing in Genesis 1, we have no hope of understanding what God is doing in Revelation. Right, right. And I, I think you know Mike Clayton um, yeah. pretty, pretty yeah. well. And uh, Mike, I've heard him several times when he's teaching a group, a new group especially, he'll say, where's the beginning of the Bible? And of course, everybody says Genesis 1. And he says, no, it's Revelation twenty twenty one. That's the beginning because it's one big circle. It's bringing yeah. us back to Genesis 1. And I, and I love that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, um, about exile and creation. Um, one of the things that we, uh, we have missed, I feel like, in our Christian upbringing, I'll speak for myself, is just the, the, the massive cataclysm that is exile. And yeah. in reading through Deuteronomy 28 a couple of years ago, uh, I mean, the, the blessings are nice, right? But the curses, they just go on and on, and they're just, they're vile, right? They just get really, really rough. Yeah. And, and I realized that through studying that chapter, um, that all of these curses are happening to Israel while they're still in the land. And it's not right. until you get to the end of the chapter where God says, if all these things don't turn your heart, then I'm going to exile you. And I was like, whoa. The, as as horrific as some of these curses are, they're not as bad as exile. Right. And and I don't think we as as Christians with a Christian background, we don't understand how cataclysmic exile is in the creation process or the recreation process. And you write about that a little bit. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. You said the, yeah, that was a section I was trying to get people to to have that as a lens. Right. The exile. That you wrote, creation was the me- I think you were quoting a, a scholar here. Creation was the message of liberation for Israel, whether she was exiled in Babylon or Egypt or under Roman rule. So the exile gives way to creation. Um, yes. In, in that sense, and and so, what is the purpose and function of exile? Well, the bottom line is, of course, uh, it's separation from the presence of God. I mean, really, if we take it back to sort of hell and heaven and, you know, all that sort of stuff, that that's its ultimate hell, if you will, Sheol or whatever, mm. is the, the ultimate separation from God and heaven represented, the you know, being in the presence of God. But it, it, it very much is a filter throughout the scriptures. And that's why at the beginning of the book, I tried to present this because this isn't a way we're used to looking at the scriptures and especially in Christianity. We, we, can, we do not appreciate the devastation caused by exile. So you think of them in their land. I mean, they lost, their temple was destroyed, their king was removed, all their institutions crumbled, the people lost their identity, they were, you know, in an honor-shame culture, they're now at the, you know, the bottom of the societal heap, they are mixed and mashed all through, you know, another culture, and, and the identity thing is probably one of the number one things because the high one of the highest values in in the ancient cultures was identity you know who you were as a people and, mm. and a tribe clan family so they literally lost everything and then of course they spent those years in babylon and many of them didn't didn't even return so the the ultimate meaning of course is their their exile from the presence of god but but they basically lost their it's not just, see, we look at it in spiritual terms, but they lost, physically, they lost their whole nation. 
Sure. So we might be able to understand that a little better now as we watch our nation starting to collapse and losing the values and the institutions that we once held dear in our, in our very framework in the Constitution. So if we could take that a step further, you know, to where they ended up, maybe that'll help us understand what's at stake now for us in, in, in America. Yeah, our, I think one of the biggest or maybe the biggest, I won't call it sin, but hindrances to the American Christian uh, or even Torah pursuant, Hebrew root, Messianic, whatever you want to call us. Um, one of the biggest hindrance, I think, just really is our comfort to really connecting yeah. with the biblical story. I mean, you Agreed. know, some people like to move homes, you know, every two or three, four years, and, and that's fine. I, personally, we built our home. We've been in it 17 years. We're going to die in that house. I mean, unless God radically changes, you know, changes our, our plans. And the thought of some foreigner nothing against foreigners, but some foreigner coming in and saying the house that you built, that your kids have memories in their bedrooms, the beds that they slept in, you know, the table that you set around and made memories, that's all ours now. And, and somebody else is going to yeah. sit at your table. Somebody else is going to lay in their kids in your, your kids' beds. I mean, we just, we have no, we have no clue um, what, what that's, what that's about. So in a very real sense, not over spiritualizing. So mentioning kind of talking about our, our country and, and I know this can be really divisive, but I really don't care because it's just Ray Charles could see what's going on right with our, our cult, culture and our country. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, about wisdom and order versus chaos. Cause we talk a lot about order and chaos, but what does that, what does that really mean? Like boots on the ground? What does that really mean in real, real terms? So the concept of wisdom is very fundamental, foundational in the ancient Near East world. I mean, every king doesn't matter whether it was in Israel or whatever nation they were ruling, asked their gods for wisdom to be able to govern. And then we see, of course, in scripture and Proverbs in multiple places, speaking of this, of wisdom as a bride and that wisdom was with God in the beginning at the foundation, you know, the wisdom was a, a, an attribute, I guess you could say in which that was used to build a house. So that's why wisdom is associated with women because it's women who build a house through, you know, yes, they receive the seed, but the, the fruit comes forth from the womb and, and the household just keeps regenerating through the woman. Mm-hmm. So that's, there's a concept there in, in, in associating wisdom and with, with women. And I write about that quite a bit in the first book, in the, in the book on creation. So the idea, um, if we look at the house, um, of course, it will be a dynastic house in the scriptures. So going back to Proverbs again, we see Solomon wrote the book, but where did that wisdom come from? Well, it came from his mother, <laughs> Bathsheba, who was the wife of King David, wife of the king and the mother of the next king in line. And so this idea of, of her, she passed along that the wisdom to build a house, to create a dynasty. And so then wisdom gets associated with the Holy Spirit as well as being feminine. And so when I always tell people, you know, it's read Proverbs over and over again. You want to build a great house? Here it is. And what's unique about Proverbs is even though It'll give you, it'll tell you to do this, but don't do that. And then four pages later, it'll tell you the opposite (laughs) because the the idea of wisdom is where it works in the moment. Mm. You know, when you exercise some sort of decision or choice or uh, behavior or whatever, it isn't the same every time it has to fit in the, in the context for which it's needed. And so I personally, I mean, the, 
the concept of the Holy Spirit is a tough one. You know, we could argue that till the cows come home, but I associate the Holy Spirit with wisdom and that wisdom that comes for you to be able to make the decisions and choices that one has to make virtually all day, every day throughout your life. And so I see it as coming to bear on making the right decisions. And so those decisions that you make with wisdom are going to produce life instead of death. We go back to creation. Right. I was just going to say, right, which is the which is the creation cycle. And so uh, just yeah. again, not to beat the dead horse, but, you know, in in all of our study of the Torah and all of our, you know, pursuing and understanding all the commandments that can be so weird and, you know, sometimes we don't understand them. In all those things, the one thing that I want to encourage everybody to keep in mind is that is it life producing? Is it? Is it order producing? So we talked about wisdom. We're going to take a break and come back on the next side where we'll get into chaos and order, cosmic mountain, waters of chaos, the ziggurats, and all this other cool stuff that we find actually in the story of the flood. And uh, it's going to be challenging for some of us to kind of rethink these symbols and rethink these things that happen. Uh, But I also think it really is going to provide a lot of growth. So uh, thank you, Dina. We'll be right back right after the break. Don't go anywhere. Hey, shalom, everybody. Welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio, where we are talking with one of my heroes, Dr. Dina Dye. And uh, Dina, again, thank you so much for being with us. Last uh, segment, we left off with wisdom. And I want to talk a little bit before we get into the nuts and bolts of Noah's story and the flood. Um, let's set the foundation of chaos and order. Again, we kind of use these terms a lot. And God came to bring order out of chaos, order out of chaos. That Yeah, that's great. But what are we, as an, as an American citizen, looking at our life right now, the culture around us, the governmental powers, what's going on in the world, how we deal with our neighbors, our own kids and our home and our spouses, how do we, how do we make real the ideas of ordering chaos? Yeah, so uh, going back a little bit to wisdom, because when we exercise wisdom, wisdom is like the, the purest of all the attributes by making a decision based on wisdom, that brings order into the camp. So the, the kings of the ancient world, as I mentioned, always, in order to function, in order to govern, asked of their gods, you know, for, for wisdom to be able to rightly rule justly, righteously, those those mechanisms. And so um, that was an essential ingredient on how to govern in order to bring peace, rest, to the camp. I guess peace would be the number one thing, shalom. Mm. So order was always associated with shalom, peace, which meant the king was firmly established on his throne. He had been enthroned and by he had defeated his enemies. So that's the ultimate. The enemies of the king, or in our case, the enemies of God have been defeated. So when the enemies rise up against the empire, against the king, the enemies create chaos through the things that they do. So we're we're seeing that in real time now because we have an we have entrenched in our government 
the enemies of order of creation of, of Yahweh himself. And so what it's how they govern and the policies they have and the decisions they make are producing nothing but death, death in, in, and it's affecting every single community in the United States. So the antidote to death, disorder, chaos, you know, government structure, central planning <laughs> is mm -hmm. creation, creation life. So that doesn't just mean having lots of kids, which that's a good thing to do. It means that every life, every image bearing life is to be producing fruit. This is why Yeshua talked about this so much that you would produce fruit. Now, how that fruit manifests itself is going to be different for different people because you have a different walk. So for me, for example, uh, writing a book like this and, and it going out and it, people receiving it and and it's, you know, going from place to place and people are reading it and they're, you know, being touched by it and it motivates them to change their behavior or their thinking. That would be an example in my life of producing mm. fruit. You, on the other hand, you have a congregation. And so as you equip your congregation to be able to go out in the community and produce life and fruit. So really, that's that's the bottom line that I see the difference. So even though we are living and it's going to get more chaotic and more difficult, you know, as these these enemies seem like they're winning, the way we push it back is we produce fruit. And the people of God all across the United States in their sphere of influence need to be producing life. That's the simplest explanation. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think I remind our people often, you know, that if you came from a, a really heavy evangelical background, um, it can be overwhelming almost to the point of paralyzation uh, to think, well, we have to win the world. We have to right. win the, the country. We have to fight, you know, on the highest levels. And really, it's really it starts with the person next to you. I mean, that, that, that oversimplifies. It's kind of like yeah. a Sunday school. But really, that's the truth. Um that it's our communities, our local, exactly. you know, I can't change the state or the Washington, D.C. is not going to listen to me from, you know, Podunk, Southwest Louisiana. But if I can change my my community, if I can teach my kids well, um, and if, if I can be nice to the person of the opposite race or, you know, a different race from me at the store, and it's those little things. Yeah. And we're talking about order. That's I love the fact producing. that. Right, right. The, the fact that, you know, we tie order to shalom. I love that, which also to me ties it to, to, to tikkun olam, which is the whole, the whole process, the process we're involved in. I, I love that. I think that's really, really, really excellent. So, um, all right, let's get into Noah a little bit deeper, a little bit more detailed. And this, guys, hang on. If you've not read the book yet or if you're not familiar with this kind of language, because there's, it's going gonna, gonna to twist your mind a, a little bit. So you talk about Cosmic Mountain, which is... Uh, a, a, an idea that I love that we see je, uh, the, the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. um, eat, the place of Eden, the garden actually being a mountain, right. um, the, the sacred mountain, which is something that completely, you know, flipped my mind when I, I, I realized it a, a few years ago, thanks to people like you and, 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 uh, and others. Um, but you see this mountain thing. All, I mean, you could take however long and just do a study on mountains in Absolutely. scripture. It would take you. Yeah. It would take you months yeah. to do them all and see what's going on uh, in those. In those, you know, the Axis Mundi you talk about, and and this is something that's shared through all the ancient cultures, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, we we just miss it. <laughs> we right. miss it as as new readers. Um, but the, these things are so so important. So that's a foundational image. Yeah. Um, chaos waters are yeah. another foundational image, and those things are tied together. 
in in right. some ways, right? They they have yeah. a relationship, and so what is the what is the relationship between uh, Cosmic Mountain and 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 Chaos Waters, if we would say it like that? So, and and scholars will kind of argue over in Genesis one, did everything come from non order or chaos? You know, I wasn't there, so I don't know. Right. But the idea. <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Waters came to represent in time enemies, armies, anything flood related, raging rivers. Obviously, it was a destructive force. So, to combat the destructive force, we have the mountain, the mountain's fixed, stable, solid place. So, how they viewed it is as the waters of chaos were pushed back, dry ground would appear. And we see that in a number of stories in scripture, especially Genesis mm-hmm. chapter one. And then the, the dry ground, it wasn't like this sort of flat plain, but it, 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 they call it the primordial hillock. You, you see that in the Egyptian writings. So they saw the dry ground. They associated it with a mountain that sort of kind of grew up, if you will, this, this solid place where the waters of chaos could not take it down. Hmm. And then on, eventually in time, they would, the gods would build their temples on top of the mountain. And so the mountain became these, this connecting point between heaven and earth. And that was very important in the ancient world as well. So temples were located in this sphere between heaven and earth. And so that the gods had the top of the mountain as their temples. And so mountains became the, place, the high place where you would go and you would worship your god because he was up top. Of course, you were down below. So the perfect representation we see in at Mount Sinai with Moses up on top of the mountain in that in that place in the cloud with the sapphire stone, and then the the, the priests who are the mediators, you know, kind of coming and going up and down, and then the people at the bottom of the mountain. And this just is language all all throughout. So the stable fixed place of the mountain contrasted with the 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 image of of waters that would come and destroy and flood and ravage and you know so now you you see when the children of Israel leave uh, Egypt to go to the wilderness to go to the mountain and they're going to build a tabernacle which is basically going to replicate is kind of like a microcosm of temple replicate the right. mountain and they cross the sea on dry ground and you see the same in the story of Joshua they're going to cross the Jordan River on dry ground and then of course they have the tabernacle, and then it's going to be in Gilgal, and it's going to then be in, um, I just went blank, in Shiloh. Shiloh and, yeah. and then we have the same language. I mean, Yeshua, the same language uh, pops up for us in um, in the New Testament when we see Yeshua. He's He represents a temple, right? He calls his body a temple. And where is mm-hmm. he? He's over the seas. So he, he represents that sort of governmental structure and sovereignty over the, the waters of chaos and the language picks itself up in in Revelation as well. And then we, when we finally see in Revelation, there is no more sea. So that mm-hmm. force that causes destruction and chaos is eliminated when God is seated on the throne and enthroned over the world. So that's kind of a quick synopsis of those two elements. Yeah. And the the beast is thrown into the sea, if I remember that correctly. Yeah. This this idea of judgment. Um, and so, yeah, I love that you you brought out that point because different places. 
uh, in Scripture, it talks about armies as a flood, and it's, right. it's not a it's not a literal water flood, but it's right. devastation and, and judgment and, and a yeah. bringing of chaos. I love that. A couple quotes from the book. You said, um, "Flooding in the ancient world was a type of judgment, which we've talked about, and the ancient always searched for the root cause of their god's anger. The people acknowledged the unpredictable and petty nature of the gods they served." And I love that quote because even though the the Israelite story borrow not borrows that's not the right word it's it's in it's encased in its culture mm-hmm. right so they're familiar with babylonian epics they're familiar with akkadian stories they're familiar with all of these these other stories it's their language it's right. their like we talk about computers today because everybody has one and knows what they're about um the they but they're the striking parts of the israelite story are where they're different Right. Uh, where God makes a, a really clear uh, delineation, and we would never think of our God as as petty and unpredictable, right? That's that's the whole opposite story and characterization of, of right yeah. of the God of Abraham. So I love that quote. Yeah, well, well, so our our story, Israel's story, is relational. It's how to right. approach and have a relationship. The story, the ancient world story, is you know, all right, what did we do wrong? We're going to be smashed over the head by our gods. And then we're, we're, we're going to approach our God and try to figure out a way so he's not angry with us anymore. So we're going to give him this right. offering or, you know, whatever. So the structure is the same. But the, what's so unique and significant about the Bible is that God introduces a story of creation that is 180 degrees opposite right. of the story right. of the nations. So within the same culture, the same kind of things are happening. They all think about mountains and waters in the same way. However, this is what our God does. This is what he looks like. This is how he intervenes and brings about the miraculous and this new creation life. Right. And we we get in trouble when we think about atonement as appeasement. Right. Because those are not not at all the same thing. But we we process it that way a lot of times. Well, you know, the sacrificial system was about appeasement. And and that's that's a big, big, big problem. Another quote from Morales, Michael Morales, was just insanely brilliant insanely. <laughs> um he he talks about when a when a temple stood its existence was associated with controlling the forces of the chaos of water right which is what we're, we're the, it's that refuge it's that safe place yeah. and that that order it's just so good so the story of noah and the flood um god comes he hates humanity right and he he's he's just sick of all their nonsense so he's just he's bloodthirsty right because that's the old testament god and so that's he's it. just he gets he gets fed up and he just kills everybody yeah. and he goes that'll show them yeah. they'll never act like this again right that's that's not the story of of noah and the flood yeah. no it's it's not yeah. um i want to talk really about the, this cleansing of sacred space and you know and the, you've addressed this in in, other, in your other books as well which is a huge um understanding and 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 lens to view this through but more specifically let's talk about because we we're going to run out of time because we could do probably 15 episodes and still I not, not not be <laughs> well, done we could do so it many again. things <laughs> yeah, there's so many things i want to pick your your brain about but um let's talk about the ark and the ziggurat you write about okay. this in in uh in i think the third chapter or so uh you say the ark representing a ziggurat makes it likely that the deluge narrative was authored and understood from the matrix of a and temple theology so so the just like in 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 my opinion in genesis 1 we have this thing well in modern day we have this thing called creation science right Mm -hmm. where you have a bunch of scientists smart people that are trying to prove god create prove genesis 1 is scientific right 
and and it's not. I mean, let's just be honest. It's it's not a scientific report. Uh, I love Dr. John Walton, who you quote in the book as well. We've we've spoken with him uh, in, at conferences at a conference before, but. The Genesis one fourteen talks about the stars in the heaven being for signs and seasons. We know that word seasons is festival, religious observances. Right. So the the first chapter of Genesis is theological. It's not scientific, okay. right? But we have spent so much time and energy and money and resources, and we've weaponized it and made it toxic that if you don't believe it's science, then you're in heresy, right? right. And we've in in doing so, we've missed the whole bigger, broader point that God is king and he's setting up a house here on earth, yeah. not over in the cloud somewhere. Right. So in my opinion, we do the exact same thing with the story of Noah and the flood. Right. We want to know, well, how big was the boat and how and listen, I'm this winter. I'm taking my kids to the, the creation or not, right. the, uh, the yeah. ark encounter. Yeah. Right. Because I want to see it. It's cool. Yeah. But but that's so not the point. Right. how big it was and what it looked like and how many animals and how they fit it. That's the stuff we want to know the, 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 the writers of the story could care less about those things. Right. Right. So what does it mean that the ark is a ziggurat? What, what does that mean? Well, so in the ancient, uh, well in Mesopotamia in particular, and we, I mean, we could see the same thing in Egypt, but um, so for their God to have their temple on top of the mountain to connect heaven and earth, like you don't have mountains down there in ancient Samaria, <laughs> the Persian. Right. I mean, it's flat. The alluvial plain, out in, you know, we have Tigris and Euphrates. So they built an artificial mountain, which is what we call which, a ziggurat. Which uh, Tower of Babel, Babel, yeah. right? Yeah. That's, plains of Shinar, the yeah. plains of Shinar where there's yeah. no mountains. Right. No mountains and no real construction material either. And so right. the idea of uh, they were building their own uh, artificial mountain in order to right. have, you know, for, for their God to dwell on top of the mountain and, and go through the whole process. And so many scholars are associating the Ark with a, a ziggurat type structure. Now they have different level, you know, there's this level thing going up and mm-hmm. some are seven, some are nine, some are 12, who knows, but we see clearly that the Ark is a three level pattern and and most scholars will tell you that that that's related to a temple heaven earth and sea uh, idea connected to the three chambers in a temple which we you know we'd see in the second first and second temple period but that these were one and the same the the difference with noah's ark is it's basically a mobile ziggurat if you will um the idea is that it would move out not be it located fixed in one place because obviously, if you built some st- stone ziggurat, it's not really going anywhere. But the function of the ziggurat was very similar to the function of the ark. Now, of course, we know where did the ark land? It landed on top of a mountain. That's very mm. significant. The ancient world would have <laughs> sat up and took notice. And we just sort of, we've got people, we just keep sending people up to, you know, the mountains in Turkey to find the remains of a wooden boat. Right. But, right. Right. I exactly. mean, good luck. But, you know, you know, yeah. who knows? <laughs> Yeah, but that's not the point. And so now you have the you have just think of the visual of you know the mountain and the, this temple like structure on top of the mountain where the God would dwell. So there's Noah and family and and Yahweh in their midst in this uh, sacred space, mm-hmm. reproducing fruit, <laughs> animals and people and new seed and new life is going to come forth when they when they come out and we're going to start the recreation process and the. The arc, that whole story is just a replay of Genesis chapter one. We're just right. starting over again. And so, of course, Noah comes out and builds a vineyard in the same way that God 
made made a garden. But it, it's just, you know, when I started writing the book, I thought, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake, right? There's hardly any <laughs> books on Noah's Ark. And there really aren't any whole books. That, you know, there's some, but not compared to what you'd, you know, pick in any other topic. So I'm like, ah, piece of cake. Well, it wasn't a piece of cake. I started reading articles. I probably had like 100 articles. And I'm reading them. And I'm going, I think I see a theme here because all of the scholars, there wasn't one scholar who didn't evaluate it from this perspective because wow. it's a hard thing to write about. And then, you know, you're going to get labeled this, that, and the other, which is why I quote a lot of important scholars throughout the book because I'm not crazy. This is how the ancients <laughs> viewed this. And now right, and we got to re we got to rework this we got to regroup and now we we need to see this language running all the way through the Bible especially into the New Testament when you think of all the things that Yeshua does he's just replaying all this stuff that we you know the context of the ancient Near East world yeah, and and I found that in in temple because I talk about temple a lot. It's very very important to me. Thanks to people like you and Rico and, and Joe Good and, um, but you don't dabble in temple. You don't you don't just get an idea of how temple works and then all of a sudden the Bible starts to make sense. Yeah, uh, temple imagery is something you have to invest in. You yes. have to really yeah. be purposeful about studying it and seeing it. And so, I, I, but once you do, it, it, it's everywhere. It's amazing. It, it is, and it, it opens up. It opens up everything. Um, you know, to to a different a different level of meaning. So also in the book, I mean, again, we could just go on and on and on because this is my this is stuff I nerd out over, <laughs> I geek out over. Um, you talk about Cain and Abel, which I shared with you just before that the Cain and Abel is a story that I've revisited the last couple of weeks, and it's just it's been really, really challenging. I guess let's in the last uh, four or five minutes we have, um, let's talk about um, about the new creation and about the hopeful side of the flood, because it gets demonized a lot of times mm-hmm. as, as, you know, God being bloodthirsty and, and a vengeful God. Um, but let's talk about the 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 ark as a temple, and then moving in, which we've kind of covered, moving into new creation and the vineyard, which you touched on uh, just now, and how that brings us back to Genesis one, and then how that brings us forward to Yeshua, and then to the Revelation. Yeah. So I mean, the, the so we have the process all work. The the waters recede. I mean, it's so interesting that the the story talks about the waters covering the mountains and fifteen cubits above the mountain. You're going, okay, like, that's really weird. Why is that information even in there, right? right. But then when you, you, this is a perfect example of what you were talking about. When you know the temple and the details of the temple, then you understand. Because there, I do have a, in my chapter four, I compare the ark with the tabernacle. This is very important right. because both were mobile uh, sacred spaces right. moving right. out. And so this using 15, which is the entrance uh, on either side of the tabernacle, the entrance there was 15 cubits. And there's multiple examples um, in the scriptures, I mean, in the temple that relate to 15 cubits. But the idea of 15 was always associated with coming into the presence of God. Wow. So it's very interesting that they, that, that information would be, would be placed in there. And so here's this place of, of, of safety, of, of, connection of coming into the presence of God. And, and uh, let me just back up because Genesis chapter one, uh, te- what, what we understand from that is that, that worship is the telos or the goal of creation. Mm, That's right. the point of all of this. And so Noah and his family are, are functioning as 
he is as priest and king, high priest and king in that sacred space. Um, for example, you know, it, we translate it window like there was a window in the roof. But right. the Hebrew word there is, is, is Zohar, which means there's an illumination. So the right. idea of the divine presence Shkira. in that space. Right. Again, yeah. sacred space, set apart. Sep- there's a boundary around it, separated from the nations, which were, is the water. And that's the whole, that's the <laughs> thing for all of, all of the Bible. That we're, we, we want to be in sacred space, approaching God for worship. And there's there's a boundary of protection and preservation, and so the the ark functions in exactly the same way. So in the ancient world, the only kings and court, courtiers, etc., had access to to wine and vineyards. They were the vintners. So the regular people didn't have any access to. It. So again, it kind of distinguished Noah as sort of a king priest in that environment. So what does he do? He, he builds a vineyard and he's going to produce food for the, the priestly class. And I think there, there's a whole lot we can you know, talk about another time about Noah functioning as a priest on the ark. And we see this with the vineyard. So this idea of the vineyard compared to the garden and the idea of new creation, new life coming forth to feed the people or to feed the ruling class, if you will, at the time. So the Bible, of course, is filled with language, graphic language related to vineyards and treading the wine press and the, the cup of the wine of fury of God. And right. um, there's so much vineyard, wine, vintner, you know, grapes language uh, coming, you know, starting with the Noah story and going all the way through. And Yeshua picks it up, of course, speaking of himself as being the vine, if you will, in the vineyard, the vine representing the main uh, really represented the king, which I mean, I don't have time to go into, but so he picks up the same language. And of course we see ultimately in the book of revelation. So this is this new language of new creation. Excellent. Well, Dina, we're running out of time. Um, your book is available on Amazon. Is that the best yes. place to get it? Great. Yeah, best and place then to get it. website to keep in touch with you. Foundationsintora.com. Very good. Like you on Facebook and follow you all the Absolutely. different places. I'm on Getter and CloudHub and MeWe and, you know, everywhere. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Dina Dye. Uh, we will do this again very shortly, hopefully, if I can get my schedule together. We love it so much. We love you. Thank you to everybody for listening. Go out and buy this book. Buy all three of them. Read them together. And I promise they will be a massive blessing to you. Until next week, we love you very much. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. Shalom, shalom. 